It's always a little bit weird for me because we tend to do our Christmas uh, presentation last week, and now, you know, I thought, what do I do? I do another Christmas. So we're going to continue on to Ma- in th- the Gospel of Matthew this morning, but I think it'll be relevant to this time of year as well. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18 this morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If you're coming, just kind of checking Christianity out, not really sure about it, uh, there should be a Bible under one of the seats near you. And if you don't own a Bible, there's a little bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other resources back there. Just pick up anything that's of interest to you. We're just really glad that you are here this morning. Um, We're going to look at a passage that's uh, pretty challenging this morning, and I think it's challenging more and more so in our day and age where I think through social media and all these different avenues now we have an ability to craft our image to try and impress people to appear in a way that we may not actually live out in reality, right? In the advent of digital photos, you can take like a thousand photos and you pick out that one photo that puts you in the best light, right? And then you apply a couple filters to that, you Photoshop it a little bit, and then you present it on your page, and then it's like, yeah, this is what I look like all the time. And we see this in media all the time, and uh, especially for women, there's this tension to appear in a particular way. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen those, the supermodel gets up in the morning, from the morning till actually when that cover appears on that magazine, the difference there, and just, you go through this, and then there's this whole, you know, first it's the makeup, it's all that kind of stuff, and then, you know, you get there, and then they pick out the right photo out of 5,000 photos that looks the best, and then they bring that photo into Photoshop, and they take a little away here, they add a little bit there, and then they present that image on the cover of a magazine, and then it's like, wow, I need to look like that and you realize nobody in the history of humankind has looked like that, right? But there's this image now that we feel we have to, to live up to, and that's an image that's, that's not true. It's a, it's a false image. It's, it's like when an actor plays a part, that's not really who they are. Yet that can impact our Christian lives as well, right? As, as we come to church, there. There may be a tendency to present ourselves in a way that we are more spiritual than we really are. How's your prayer life going? Ah, pretty good. I prayed for two minutes in the last three weeks, but I think it's going pretty good, isn't it? How are you doing in this area or that area? And I'm doing really well. Or we tend to exaggerate those things that are impressive in our particular Christian culture and not mention those things that maybe people would look askew at a little bit. We're presenting an image that may not match who we really are. And this is a passage that deals with that tendency that I think we all have. And Jesus starts out this passage basically saying, beware. Beware because this is a tendency I think all of us as human beings have to want to promote an image of ourselves that is a little bit shinier and brighter and nicer than the reality that we actually experience in life. And I think this can be really devastating if this infects an entire body of believers. Because 
as we all gather and as we present this image of ourselves that may not exactly match with the reality and say, this is what's going on in my life. I'm listening to that as a Christian and they might not be doing quite as well as the image of you that you present and I feel like, oh man, everybody else is doing pretty well. Maybe I'm the only one that's struggling or having difficulty dealing with this habitual sin that grips my life periodically and everybody else seems to be doing fine so maybe what's the matter with me and maybe I don't belong here or then I begin to create an image that is not true to who I really am. So I've titled this message, Who Are You Trying to Impress? And it's an important question to think about. You know, it may be someone in the internet world or a lot of people in the internet world. It may be a boss. It may be a person that you have a romantic interest in. But who we're trying to impress often will cause us to act in ways that aren't really consistent. And I'm not saying, okay, you go out on the first date, you're not going to want to air all that stuff. But the reality is, do you ever get to that place where you're honest and real about this is who I really am? And so that's what Jesus is picking up. And in this culture, being spiritual or being a good Jew was highly valued, right? So people like me that stood up in front of other people and talked about spiritual things, there was a huge danger of wanting to present an image that was a little bit different than the reality that's going on in life. And so Jesus, we've been in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has, has said, this is what I want my people to look like. This is what citizens of the kingdom should, should look like. This is a natural outgrowth and outflow of the Holy Spirit coming into your life and changing and transforming you. And so we've been looking at these passages where he's been dealing with those heart issues, right? And you say, well, I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus says, well, have you ever been really angry and so angry that you wanted to take somebody out? That's where it starts. Well, I've never hopped into bed with someone who's not my spouse. Well, has your heart ever taken you down a path where you've wanted to do that? And maybe you're thinking about how to accomplish that. And he says, that's, that's where it needs to be. It needs to be at a heart level. And here, Jesus is dealing not so much with the temptation to do things that are wrong, but with the temptation to do things that are right and good, but to do them for the wrong reasons. And so let's pick up the story in Verse 1 of chapter 6 of Matthew. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. 
Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is a reading of God's Word. So Jesus gives three basic examples of piety or religious practice in that day. And these were the three big markers of what it meant to be a good Jew. To give alms or to give to the needy, to pray, and to to fast. And as he looks at these Basically, these are all good things. Jesus is not saying in this thing, hey, I'm against good deeds. I'm against good works. I'm against practicing righteousness. That's not what he's saying. Because if you look back in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14, he says, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to be doing good works, to be doing good works so much that others notice, hey, what in the world is going on with that group of people? They're loving the poor. They're caring for those that are less fortunate. There's racial equality among them. They care for all different types of people. What in the world is going on there? But here it seems to say Jesus says, don't do any of that stuff in public. Is there a contradiction here? I don't think so. I think the main point Jesus is getting across is looking at our motivation for doing those good deeds. If you look in Matthew chapter 5, the motivation there is to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And in three examples that Jesus gave here, what was the motivation of the hypocrites? To be seen by others, right? So that they get the glory themselves. So that they're viewed as, whoa, those are really spiritually connected people. They must be super holy. And in that culture, that was a really big deal. You wanted to be valued. Our culture is not that big into doing that. But their culture, being serious about following the God of the Old Testament was really, really important. And so Jesus says these folks are doing these things, and not that the things are bad. In fact, as believers, we should be engaged in good works. And there's a school of thought that's out there that says basically, ah, as Christians, don't worry about good works, you know? We're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one should boast. And then a lot of people, that's great, I just won't do anything. I'll just kick back, and it's like, no, that's not what Scripture's calling us to. It's calling us to a life that's transformed from the inside out. I'm not saved by my good works. 
Not one of them. But God is calling me to be transformed and changed and begin to live this life out in the world in such a way that others will take notice and say, wow, those people are different. Why do they love in the way that they do? And so, again, in this passage, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say, if you give to the poor and the needy. He doesn't say, if you pray. He doesn't say, if you fast. He says what? When? 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 So what is Jesus doing? He's assuming that his followers will be engaged in these practices. And those are good things, right? But he's saying, I want your motivation to do these practices to be very different than the hypocrites. Well, what's a hypocrite? We think in our culture, hypocrites got a lot of negative connotations, right? And it's got a lot of negative connotations in our culture because of this passage right here. But before Jesus spoke in this way, a hypocrite just was an actor, right? It's just saying, this person's an actor, right? Jesus grew up in what town? Nazareth, right? And we talked last week that he was a tecton, probably a stonemason right next to Nazareth. While Jesus was going up, they were building this huge amphitheater in a city called Sephora. So it's likely two miles away that Jesus probably was maybe doing some work along with his father on building this kind of uh, amphitheater in the city of Sephora. So he was familiar with actors and he's saying, basically, I don't want you to be an actor when you practice your righteousness. I don't want it to be coming from a place that's not real, that's not genuine, that's not authentic. I don't want you doing it so that other people say, wow, that person is just amazing. So don't do your good works in a way that is motivated solely by the desire to be seen by other people. He's also in this passage not saying that you should never do good works in order to receive a reward. There's a school of thought in Christianity that says a deed is only good if it's completely altruistic, where I benefit not at all from that. But if you look at this passage, you'll see over and over this word reward come in there. And what does he say to the hypocrites? He says, basically, you're doing all your deeds to be seen by other people that they say, oh, amazing work, Helvy. That was phenomenal. And we've got the Helvy wing of the hospital that was built with a donation. And I, yeah, that's just, he's an amazing guy. And I'm not saying don't donate to the hospital, but if you're donating to put your name on the wing of the hospital, maybe that's the wrong reason. And Jesus says, don't do your reward to impress other people because if you do it, then impressing them is the only reward you're going to get. Lots of likes, thumbs up, okay? And when that thumbs up is gone, it's gone. It's over. There's nothing that's left from that reward. And that's what he basically says. Don't do it to be rewarded by people, but do it to be rewarded by God. And when you're doing these things, do them in a way that in one sense is secret, is, is hidden away. Because God sees what goes on in secret. And he sees that and he will reward you for it. So notice he doesn't say, ah, don't do anything to be rewarded because that's just subpar. You just need to do it because you're that awesome kind of person that likes to do good things and you don't expect anything in return. And sometimes we feel guilty because it's like, okay, you know, I want to do this thing. And Jesus knows that. Okay, we're motivated by rewards. But he says, think about where your reward's coming from. If you want that reward to last, 
If you want it to be permanent, then you want to be rewarded by your father, not by the applause of people. Because how many people remember the applause of people that happened three, five years ago? Who was the top person in our culture five, ten years ago in terms of popular? I don't, I don't remember. Nobody else does either. It's like, okay, what have you done for me lately? How awesome have you been lately? And Jesus is saying, don't work for that because it's so temporal. It goes away in a heartbeat. And Jesus doesn't describe what the reward the Father is going to give us. He just doesn't. And I have no idea. But I know the Psalms say that in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand pleasures forevermore. So that's the kind of reward that I want to be working for. And Jesus says that's okay to be motivated in that way. Yes, Lord, I want to give so that you will reward me, but I want to do it in such a way that it's not drawing attention to me in the here and now because if I do it that way, then the applause and the attention I get in the here and now, Jesus is saying that. That's your reward. You got it. In Hebrews 11.6, it's talking about people coming to God and they must believe that what? He exists. And what's the second thing? That he's the rewarder of those who earnestly or diligently seek him. God wants our best and he wants to reward us. He's a father that delights to give good gifts to his children. But those, the timing of the giving of those gifts sometimes in our lives is not instantaneous, right? I often think, man, if a chunk of my hair would fall out when I'd sin, I'd be much less inclined to sin. If I got an immediate you know, deposit in my bank, you know, if I did something right, that would be a lot more of a reward. But the timing of these, Jesus doesn't dictate. He just says, you will be rewarded by your Father. But I don't know about you, when we looked at those pictures of the vast massiveness of the universe last week, it's like, okay, a God that big who said, I'm going to reward you, I want to be on that guy's side. Because he has no limitations in terms of resources. I mean, even if you impress whoever, you pick your cultural icon that has more resources than you know, then even that person's resources are limited, and even if they give you the most amazing things that this world can provide, one day you're checking out, and one day those things are going to break and bust, and 10 years from now you're going to be like, oh, what do I do with this thing? I've reached the stage of my life where I'm trying to get rid of more stuff than I want to get, you know, and it frustrates the heck out of my kids for Christmas, and I say, what do you want? I was like, I really don't need any, you know, I'm trying to get rid of stuff, not gather stuff to me, but I do want to be rewarded by my father. And one of my challenges in my own life is that I never feel like I'm measuring up, right? I never feel like I'm going to be rewarded. You know, when Scripture says, you know, well done, good and faithful service, servant, I think what God's going to say to me is, ah, average job, somewhat, sometime faithful servant. But I know that's my own stuff, right? And I know the truth of Scripture is if we follow Jesus, we seek to abide in Jesus, then our reward is going to be massive. And he's saying, I delight in you. Come into my presence. I'm singing songs over you, and I want to be with you. And that's the reward that we anticipate with our Father as we come home to him. And for me, it's taken a long time and still has taken a long time for that to get to hear, to hear, but I'm working on that in my own life. The rewards God offers, I think, are beyond our ability to comprehend. But I want to be working for those. 
So Jesus here is saying it does matter what we do. But you know what matters even more than what we do? Why we do what we do. Because none of the things the Pharisees, the hypocrites were doing there, and I think he is targeting the Pharisees because later on he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is an influence that permeates. And what is that leaven of the Pharisees? He says, hypocrisy. Play acting at this thing called life with God. Appearing or trying to appear in a public sphere different than I truly am in my own home or with the people that are close to me. So 6.1 is kind of a summary of this whole section. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the motivation. Then he looks at, like I said, these three primary spiritual practices that were super important in this day and age. And again, he's saying that, I'm not saying don't do these things, but I want you to be giving, so when you give, do it in a particular way. And giving was kind of the marker of what it meant to be a spiritual person, giving to the needy in those days. So much so that they had a box for alms for the poor, and in Jewish circles that was called the box of righteousness. So if you're giving, you're a righteous person. After the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, certain Jews after that basically, how do we atone for our sins? And instead of a sacrifice, basically giving alms or giving to the needy became the way that you experienced atonement with God since the sacrificial system was no longer there. So this is super important for a Jew. And he says, don't do this in a way that draws attention to yourself. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give. And I'm thinking about it. How in the, how could that be? You know, I know what my hands are doing. But I was reading Dallas Willard, and he gave an explanation that helped me. And he said, basically, some of you are pilots out there. Most of us drive cars and things like that. We start to do things that are just second nature, just from muscle memory, okay? If you're following a helicopter or a plane, I like driving cars. I think the only cars that should be driven are manual transmissions. So when I'm driving a car and I'm going in and turn and I want my RPMs to match on the downshift and I have to heel toe and all these things are going on in my head, I'm not, my right foot is not thinking what my left foot is doing. It's like, okay, I got my foot on the brake and the gas and the clutch is in and I'm ready to feather. You know, I'm not thinking any of that. It's just, I just do it. It just happens, right? And so what I think he's saying here is let your giving be so natural that you just do it and it's not a big deal. You don't even remember. This is what characterizes you as a follower of Jesus Christ. You just have a heart for the needy and you just give and you're not blowing trumpets. And we see that. It's like, okay, did that really happen? There's nothing in history that indicates when people gave, they came in with a trumpet. So I think it's an idiomatic saying, but I think we've got the same type of thing in our culture, right? That guy's just tooting his own horn, right? He's seeking to draw attention to himself to say, oh, look at how wonderful I am. And Jesus says, don't do that. I want you to be involved and I want you to be concerned for the poor because God has a heart for the poor and to be compassionate towards them, but do it in such a way that you're not looking for a reward from other people to say how generous and how wonderful you are. You're looking for a reward from the Father that says, I'm so appreciative that you have a heart of compassion like the heart of my son. 
And you come and you work in a way that's humble. And Jesus came into this world with no ostentatious display of glory, but he just came to love and to serve. And that characterized his whole life. Who did he want to impress? The Father, right? So I only say what the Father gives me to say, and I only do what the Father tells me to do. I'm performing, as someone has said, for an audience of one. That's my desire. And so Jesus is saying that should characterize us as believers when we give, just that it's a natural outflow of our lives. Those that have been touched by the Spirit have recognized how much we've received. It just flows out of us, and it's just almost second nature to us as we go through life. And then he moves on to prayer, another marker of what it meant to be spiritual in those days. And the Pharisees would stand up in the synagogue and make long prayers, and they'd stand on the street corners, and he's saying, yes, you know what, they're just doing this to be seen by people. And we're going to look more at prayer in a couple weeks, so I don't want to dig into it here. Jesus seems to emphasize this because he deals more with it in this passage, but the point I want to make is he doesn't want us to be praying in a way that draws attention to us and saying, wow, have you heard her pray? It's amazing. I remember when I was going to seminary and there was a guy that would pray in King James English and I'm like, really? Who talks that way anymore? If prayer is conversing with God, then just talk to God. I never talk to anybody with these and thous and hushed tones. Our voice changes and now he's saying, don't do that. In fact, go to the inner room where your father sees and prayer if you say it's to communicate with the Father and connect with the Father and develop your relationship with the Father, then do it for the Father to see and nobody else. Now is this saying we never pray in public? I don't think that's the case. Jesus prayed in public, right? You see evidence in Acts that the church was praying together with one another. There was public prayer. But again, the idea is what's the motivation here? Am I praying for other people to hear me or even for myself to hear me? Remember the story of the, the tax collector, the publican, and the, the Pharisee that go and pray, and the Pharisees, I thank God that I'm not like other people. I'm really, really righteous dude, and I'm not like that guy over there. That's not a prayer. What is it? It's like, I'm wonderful. Come on, tell me it. I want to hear that. And what did the other guy do? He beat his chest and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, who walked away justified, made right in the sight of God? It wasn't the man that was saying, oh, I'm just so wonderful. Look at all the things I do. I fast twice a week. I do all this kind of stuff. Aren't I wonderful? And it's not him. No. If you read through the Gospels, you realize Jesus' harshest words were for the religious professionals of the day. And that scares me to death. Because I am one. And I never want to be the kind of person that's a different person up here than I am at home or than I am as I visit with other people. I never want to present an image like, oh, he's so wonderful. And I'm tempted sometimes. Oh, I tell somebody I'm going to be praying for him, right? And I love it. It's like, and you see him walking up the hall. Oh, Lord, bless John. It's like, John, been praying for you. It's like, really? Really? It's like, dang, totally slipped my mind. I knew I should have been praying for you. You ever get one of those, thanks for praying for me? It really worked out well. And you realize, man, I didn't pray at all for that. How do we respond? Oh, you bet. Oh, dang, 
totally forgot about that. Forgive me. So it's not this calling to be perfect people here, but it's calling to be genuine, real people. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount starts out, right? Blessed are what? The rich in spirit, those that have their spiritual life totally dialed in together. No, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. You don't hunger and thirst for something that you already have, but it's a longing in you. This is the kind of person that I want to be. And so Jesus says, don't do this stuff that makes you appear more spiritually impressive than you are. Be honest and be real. And then he moves on to fasting. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy. Don't disfigure your faces. And there's some evidence that Pharisees would actually put stuff on their faces that would notify other people that they're fasting. I'm just denying myself for the Lord today. I'm so righteous. I'm so holy. Look at how much I'm willing to give up to pursue God. If you want to read a passage on fasting, read Isaiah 58. Because the Jews at that time were going through all this stuff and fasting, but they were treating their workers like dirt. They were in fights with one another, and the Lord says, is this the kind of fast I want? Yeah, you deny yourself, you humble yourself in that way, but you treat other people like dirt. And Jesus says, when you fast, fasting is a good thing, but fasting is one of those things that I've asked for a show of hands here. Probably very few people in the modern church fast regularly, if at all. Yeah, I tried that once. It's terrible, right? When I started the practice, I would do it in a particular way. And by the time I got home, man, I was hangry. And it spilled over on my family, right? And I was like, the Lord is like, Brett, is this the kind of fast that I require? That you humble yourself, but then when you get home, you yell at your wife and you yell at your kids and you're ornery and you just want to go to bed and get up the next morning so this stupid thing is over? I don't think that's my heart and intention in fasting. So I've modified how I do it in a way that I can do it, hopefully to honor God, but also to love those people around me as well. In the Old Testament, there's only one mandated fast. It's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the only day. There's a whole ton of feasts in the Old Testament. I like that balance, but there's only... One fast. But by the time of Jesus, after the second temple period, basically fasting for the good Jews took place twice a week, on Monday and on Thursday. And it seems like in the early church that tradition carried on. This is a a saying from the Didache, a Christian book basically of teachings that was early on in the history of the church. And this is what the the author says, Do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast Monday and Thursday, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. (laughs) She'll love that. (laughs) It's like, oh. So obviously fasting was part of the early church. It was something that they did and seemed to do regularly. Some of you are familiar with Lent, you know, and usually Lent you give up something in order to kind of show your sacrificial nature before Easter. But in the early church, Lent was a 40-day fast, that they wouldn't eat anything, and usually fasting is from sunup to sundown, and then they'd have a small kind of humble meal in the evening for 40 days. That was a little too intense, so that kind of, just give up something. Oh, I've given up driving on the left side of the road for, you know, this period. So, you know, we can make it more comfortable to us 
But it seemed like fasting was something where people were willing to say, you know what, I'm going to deny my flesh in order to commune with God. It's not just denial, but it's like, I want to deny me something so that I can feast on God. And I heard somebody teaching, you know, Jesus, we saw him, he went out into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. And my thinking was like, man, he must have been really, really weak after that time. But the person made a point that, yes, he was physically weak, but probably he was spiritually stronger than in any other point to then. Because there's a, there's a way in which Jesus says when he meets with the woman on the well, man, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. It's drawing on my relationship with the Father. It's feasting on him that gives me an energy and a power and a strength. So Jesus is not against fasting, but he's against fasting in a way so that other people will look at us and say, wow, how holy and righteous is that person? So he says, basically, if you're fasting, take a shower, put on deodorant, comb your hair, just look like you normally look, but inwardly be communing with God. In the early church, those that fasted would often give the resources that they would have spent on food for that meal to help the poor. So fasting and almsgiving kind of coincided as well. So again, Jesus is not against doing good works. They should characterize us as believers, but he's against doing them for the reason of being seen and noticed by other people. And as I was thinking about this passage, I, you know, I don't think most of us struggle with really being ostentatious givers or praying in public and making a big show of it or looking really miserable when we're fasting if we ever fast. But I was thinking, you know, what, what are the good deeds in our kind of church culture that bring esteem and value from other people? And I was kind of thinking, it's like, you know, one of them is, is Bible knowledge, right? Why am I studying this Bible? Is it so when I get into Bible study, I can just whip out that verse and say, no, 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 I think you've got the wrong interpretation there. Let me correct your thinking on that passage. Or is it to get to know God and to allow his word to begin to transform my life so I begin to live more like Jesus in the actual living of my life? Social justice is really significant right now, and we should be moving towards that, but why are we doing what we're doing in that arena? Is it so that I can post pictures and say, look at how engaged I am? Or am I doing this because I feel God's calling to be compassionate and to work for justice in our society? And motivation is to please my Father, not to be seen by everybody else around me. Participation in church activities. Missed you at Bible study last week. <laughs> right? I've been perfect attendance record at Bible study, right? It's the little thing. This is what it means to be a serious Christian. Our particular response in worship, right? If you raise hands, both hands, one hand, keep them down. Close your eyes, open your eyes. All You know, in certain situations, this marks what it means to be really moved by God in a worship service. Be moved by God in a worship service, and if you feel God's calling you to raise your hand. Raise your hand and do it. But don't look at the people around you and say, oh, I guess I need to raise my hand at this part of the service. Or if nobody else is raising their hands, like, oh, I better keep this thing down. And God said, just raise your hand and praise me. Man, these people are way too uptight. You need to loosen them up. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing it to impress others or to glorify my Father in heaven? 
Even sharing our faith, evangelism. How many people have you shared your faith with? And all these things, these are not bad things. These are all good things, but they're good things that can be done for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, beware, because there's a tendency in all of us to want to appear different than we actually are. Or maybe giving testimonies of our victory over sin and all these kind of things and never sharing, you know, I continue to struggle with this in my life and I wish it was gone, but it's not there yet and I'm still working with God. I always say, I don't want to be a fine, fine church. How you doing? Fine. How you doing? Fine. Nobody I know in this world and the brokenness of this world is doing completely fine in every area of their life. And I'm not saying that we need to have kind of this emotional vomiting about everything in our lives to everybody that we encounter, but there need to be people in your life where you are real and authentic and genuine with, and they've asked you what you're doing. You're, you're like, yeah, I'm real about that. How are you doing with lust in your life? Ah, oh, struggling a little bit. Spent two hours on the internet watching porn. How's greed going? Ah, oh, yeah. Just maxed out three of my credit cards. I'm looking for a fourth. How's the gossip thing going? Oh, oh, not too bad. Shared a lot of prayer requests last week. Right? So I think the call of this passage is for us to be authentic, to be genuine, to be real. And to me, as, like I said, as I came through this, the question that popped into my mind is who am I trying to impress? Whose opinion do I value more highly than anybody else? And Jesus is saying, let that be your father. And he's not saying, don't ever do good works in public. But he says, don't do those good works in public if you're longing to hear from everybody else just how wonderful you are. And how do we get to that place where we actually can do these works in secret and to, to be content with the reward that we're going to receive from our Father? I think our relationship with Christ needs to be steeped in an awareness of his love and grace for us. That we're fully accepted, that we're fully loved, that we are fully valued by God. And when I really know that, then I'm not going to be so prone to want to impress you, to want to have more likes, because my worth and value is not determined by what everybody else thinks of me, it's determined by what God thinks of me. But I know that's a process. It has been a process in my own life. Proverbs says, if the fear of people is a snare. It trips us up. It causes us to act in ways that are inconsistent with who we really are. So who do you want to impress this morning? I read a quote from a guy named A.A. Bruce that I liked. And he says this, and I think it sums up this passage. He says, show when you are tempted to hide and hide when you are tempted to show. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And Lord, we just want to admit that so often we do things for appearance sake, to be seen by other people, to be valued by other people. Yet, Lord, help us, if we are your children, to be more concerned with being esteemed and valued by you 
and following you than the applause of the crowds. Lord, that's a huge challenge for us. We live in a world that's more and more consumed with how am I coming across in this world and a world that's so quick to cancel us out, to write us off, to throw us to the sidelines if we're not currently involved in the thing that is the issue of the day. Oh Lord, help us to take our marching orders from you. The things that you're calling us to do, whatever good works they may be, may we be fully engaged in those, but engaged for more than just wanting to hear the acclaim of other people, but wanting to please you and to love those around us. Lord, help these kind of activities become second nature to us the more we walk with you and the more we abide in you. Lord, we do not have the strength to do this on our own. We're all naturally wired to want to impress other people, but help us by your spirit. Fill us, change us from the inside out so that we would be a people that is truly concerned with pleasing you, our audience of one. It's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.